is Teachers in the Wild podcast. I am Donovan. I am here with my partner, Fry. Hello. Hello. And we are extremely, I guess, honored and privileged would be one way to put it. Um, very happy with the guest we've managed to secure for this episode. Um, it is Alan Muscat. And I'm going to be honest with you, Alan, after reading your bio, there is no way on God's green earth that I'm going to be able to like list everything it is that you do. So could you save me from embarrassing myself? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'd be happy to. <laughs> um, I am a um, wild food educator. And my word for that uh, is a philosopher because I not only teach people about foraging, but I also share the philosophy of it. And that's a background I have. It's a degree that I have but I didn't learn the practical aspect in school. That all came afterwards. But I look at it a little more deeply most of the time. I'm not just about how, but about why you would want to do this, why it's important, and those kind of questions interest me. So I enjoy interviews even more sometimes than teaching foraging because you can look at the um, bigger picture. Sort of the, um, the method behind the madness. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or why, it's, why, why it isn't quite madness, which is what most people might imagine. Yeah. So with that being said, um, what is the philosophy? Yeah, um, well, people have assumptions about foraging being um, dangerous or uh, too much work or that it will hurt the woods or that there's not enough out there for all of us. And um, the truth is, these are all myths. So the philosophy is that, you know, the way, just as foraging is easier than you think and safer, uh, life in general is the same. So what happens when you forage is you honestly get an experience of what we consider a myth, which is the Garden of Eden. You know, where like food is easy, life is easy, uh, it's not a struggle. Um, to me, that's a really fundamental lesson that you could learn because we spend most of our time um, struggling and assuming that the world is scarce and that we have to then compete and um, work really hard. And this isn't what you see when you look at hunter-gatherers. They have actually an easy time in life. and. Um, I think that could teach us a lot and solve a lot of our problems. To me, that's such a beautiful outlook. And I'm so interested to to know how you got to foraging, because for me, um, it seems so unattainable and far-fetched because of the world we live in and um, how society poses food as this commodity that we have that we have so little of or that we can control who gets it so i'm curious how did you um choose this path um when in school yeah um in in school meaning college Mm -hmm. i went hiking for the first time and i also cooked for myself for the first time as part of a cooperative that i joined and 
in my studies, I encountered Taoism, which is about being natural. So all three of those came together when I got an interest in, uh, in organic food, whole food, and ultimately where I'm at now, which is 20 or more years later, uh, you know, wild food is natural food. For me, it's the only food that is natural. Um, and at the time, I recognized some of those reasons for doing it. Um, I mean, now I count seven, and I, I don't know if back then I was conscious of it, but um, so I remember hiking in college and someone picking a blueberry off a bush, and to me that was a revelation. Like, uh, I didn't grow up doing that. I mean, maybe avocados, because I'm from Miami, and so there's mangoes, say, on a tree, but um, it, wasn't, it wasn't quite the same idea. Uh, and I'm not sure why, I mean, because trees, I always assumed, were, were planted and taken care of. But here we were, you know, uh, backpacking. And um, so the food was free. That's number one. It was it allowed us to be independent. I'd say that's the second reason. Um, it's healthier. And I was recognizing that. That'd be the third. It's more sustainable and I, I definitely was aware of that by the time I left college that I wanted to be more ecological and uh, a fifth reason I, I call the foodie reason um, and it really overlaps with the others there's a lot more variety when you eat wild foods and so it's a lot more interesting particularly because most all of that to us is new and um, and it's fresher which makes it healthier but also tastes a lot better and then the sixth reason is um, it, it was reconnecting, you know, to, to the earth, to my ancestry, you know, lighting up sort of old cobwebby parts of my brain. <laughs> um, and uh, finally, I, I, this seventh reason is really a combination of the rest. It was just fun. I mean, it's like a Easter egg hunt, you know, or a scavenger hunt through the woods and... Um, I count those now, but back then, like I said, I, I'm not sure how conscious I was of what I now call, you know, this philosophy. Yeah. So it, the, the philosophy itself was kind of, I guess you could say, an evolution. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think that, um, you know, even this, this phrase of the Garden of Eden, I honestly didn't think of that until I heard someone say that on an email list that I was for like mushroom hunting and so it just casually said it and it just clicked for me I, I never realized that that image um just as uh I remember 10 years ago I went to this this psychic you know I was having a lot of um stress about changing my life so radically and she and when I walked in she said I see a lot of plants around you like why is that and I said I don't know I'm a, I'm a mushroom expert and she said no this is like a this is plants and I didn't even understand that until years later I realized well this isn't just about mushrooms it's about like the whole ecosystem and that's probably um you know assuming this woman you know actually <laughs> was channeling something that um it finally made sense. You know, this is about um, reconnecting with, with all of nature. And um, 
See, when I started, I was foraging in general, but very quickly mushrooms became my focus. And I, partly because no one else could teach me about it, or couldn't easily find a person, so I got into books. And you have to be really geeky to, <laughs> to be a mushroom hunter. And I had been really, you know, really academic. So it was easy for me to get a stack of books and try, try to, like, figure things out with them. And um, it's the last thing you should do. It's the dumbest way to do this. And I, that evolved, too. And a part of being natural is learning from someone else. So I really don't recommend using books or apps, you know, or the Internet or any of that stuff, which is all like new and artificial, because none of it is easy, none of it's reliable, so it's dangerous, and just find, an, uh, to me, a field guide, you know, most of us think of what a field guide is. To me, a field guide has two legs. You know, it's a person that guides you in the field. And that evolved too, like, for many years I taught people how to use books, and then it was around 2000 gosh, five maybe, that I, I quit doing that. And now I, I just teach people how to learn from another person. So that has evolved too. Yeah, the idea of using books to, um, to identify plants is kind of, it's kind of intimidating, especially when you look at mushrooms. Um, you know, because I've heard the, old, the, old, the, the saying that you only eat a bad mushroom once. Um, mm -hmm. yeah, <laughs> for, for various reasons, but, um, you know, it's kind of intimidating <laughs> when you look at books because, you know, they'll talk about stuff like, um, oh, I can't remember. I'm probably going to get the technical terminology wrong here, but like a spore sample, mm -hmm. I was good. I don't know the first thing about spores, spore samples, none of it. I am a complete and utter babe in the woods and not a very pretty one at that when it comes to, to stuff like mushrooms and, you know, just plants in general, because it's, it's something I was never taught. I mean, outside of like, you know, a persimmon off a tree or a wild strawberry or um, like a wild onion. Those are about the, that's about the extent of my foraging knowledge. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But where, where I think <laughs> does that, <laughs> I, I get going and I can't stop. Um, the, there's kind of a fear of foraging, I think. Um, where does that fear, like, really come from? Yeah. Okay, thank you. So um, I think that the range you covered in your question um, answers that. Like, you, you said that the books are intimidating and that you feel like a babe in the woods and you're familiar with things like wild onion and where does fear come from? So the interesting thing is that uh, a lot of us are more comfortable with plants, if anything, than mushrooms. And not only is, yeah, so not only is foraging sort of irrationally scary for us, but mushrooms are sort of the pinnacle of that. And the truth is, mushrooms, if anything, are safer than plants. Hmm. So wild onion, for example, has a deadly what many people would call look-alike, not in our area, but out west. Um, and luckily, we don't have to worry about it. But um, there is a wild onion that we do have here. I'm not sure about the triangle. Do you have ramps? Yes. Okay. Well, 
So ramps are more northern in colder weather, but we also have things that look like ramps here, quite similar, one of which is deadly. Hmm. And um, most of us are used to ramps, you know, who have heard about them, and it doesn't, it doesn't freak them out because it's what you're used to. And um, so the reason we, don't, we, have, we have the fear is that we're not used to doing this. I mean, we're not afraid to drive down the road at 50, 60 miles an hour, three feet away from an oncoming car because there's a dotted line in the road between us. You know, if you swerve a few feet over, that's, to my mind, a lot more dangerous than confusing. And the best analogy for this would be, like, if you went into the supermarket, like, would you be afraid to try to distinguish something like carrots from cauliflower, you know, broccoli from uh, parsnips? Like, we, if we grow up with those things, like, we're not afraid of them. But the stuff in the wild is not any more similar. So there's no reason why um, you should confuse any two things if, you're, you, if you grow up seeing them. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Um, being surrounded by a certain environment will um, manifest something inside um, anyone. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I, I think it's interesting that you gave the analogy of the supermarket and being able to distinguish um, carrots from cauliflower because I, I went to the my local grocery store um, I guess I shouldn't say local. It's definitely a corporate-run grocery store just to see what kind of mushrooms they had um, in preparation for this interview. Because mm -hmm. my question is, do the mushrooms that I see in my grocery store, are these the ones that you forage for? And I was seeing shiitake, um, mayatake, um, enoki, and portabella, and these baby bellas. And I, I, I'm curious, are... I'm, I, are those the only ones that there are, or is there a plethora in the Appalachian Mountains that I don't know of? Yeah, uh, and I'm glad you asked because that helps me answer the last question, which I feel like I didn't maybe completely. It's like, well, why are we afraid mm -hmm. to forage? And what I did say is we, we live in a world of scarcities. So at your store, you saw maybe mm -hmm. five things. And... Um, about three of them uh, grow in the wild. You know, there are maitake here. There is, um, I forget what, shiitake does not grow wild here, uh, at least not yet. But uh, it has relatives that are wild. Same with portabella. There are wild versions that grow here, like the meadow mushroom, which is basically like the pizza mushroom hmm. in the wild. Um, and... Um, there's other things I've seen in stores like chanterelles. Those grow wild. So do morels. Uh, but those are just, uh, you know, half a dozen of hundreds of different wild mushrooms that you could find, or even thousands in, in the, my area. And uh, most of those are harmless. It doesn't mean they all are delicious. Um, they might taste terrible. Um, yeah, and I wouldn't go out eating them at random because the, a lot of deadly ones are very common, but there's very few deadly ones. Uh, 
And so, you know, we grow up afraid and there's real dangers out there. Just like, you know, you wouldn't go out and just, uh, most of us, I don't know, would hop in bed with a complete stranger. <laughs> uh, right. Or just like trust any person on the street. Like it's the, the same thing. If you went into a store and you just like ate everything and drank everything there like you could just open up a bottle of bleach and drink that you know that's in the store too <laughs> um so you wouldn't you you can't do that in the woods um and that's just common sense you know it's just not mm-hmm. that common <laughs> because we don't it's scarce in our day um, and age <laughs> well it's not it's not the knowledge is scarce but the the wild food oh i was saying common sense <laughs> Oh, that is well. I mean, you know, in in some ways, whoever named mushrooms didn't do them any favors because isn't there one called like the death cap or something along those lines? And like, yeah, well, and it is deadly. Um, Like you said, it's edible (laughs) once. Um, There are mushrooms that don't deserve their names, like the um, trumpet of death, which I just finished having for dinner five minutes ago, Um, and. That mushroom is pure black, and so even the people who call it that, the French, really enjoy eating it. They don't, you know, hold it against it. Maybe they're just trying to scare other people away. <laughs> I don't know. Um, yeah, but uh, you know, what's in the name? Like, um, yeah, essentially, you know, the, there are market forces, of course, of course, for keeping us, you know controlled and you know funneling demand into into the the store essentially um and that goes back you know thousands of years that's what civilization Mm -hmm. rests on is the idea of having to buy your food from someone else you know basically so that makes me wonder and think to some of the things from your site about it's a there was a point in your life where you were illegally foraging and that's so mm-hmm. kind of intuitive to me because it, you're going out and you are going into the wild and taking what nature has to offer you and um, providing sustenance, but it was illegal. So mm-hmm. could you um, tell us about that for a, a moment about what, went mm-hmm. on during that time and how you came to find out that it was illegal <laughs> yeah yeah and a couple mm-hmm. things i want to mention something that might not feel um close to home but it actually is uh in our own home state and that's that many indigenous peoples find that their lands have been converted mm-hmm. to parks around the world and then those parks do not allow the collection of wild foods to protect the parks. And then these people are denied their traditional ancient form of sustenance. And they're often granted that um, as an exception. So you'll have, you know, people like Cherokees are allowed here in the Great Smokies maybe to, um, you know, to hunt, for example, maybe within, within limits. And in North Carolina, there's actually a bill on the ballot to amend the first amendment. You actually have kind of a bill of rights on the state level and 
you've heard of you know life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Well, um, as I understand it, like as you described, like hunting and being able to gather from the wild. I think that's those are the words they use. Um, is on the ballot to be added to sort of the the very first um, fundamental right on the state level that people should have. And what's funny is that they talk about hunting and fishing, but <laughs> they don't mention foraging at all. Uh, it's not even like on the table. It's not on the radar that like anyone would even like think to do it, which is strange because we have say ginseng has always been hunted here um ramps like I, that i just mentioned even morels are fairly well known here um you know and a number of other plants but um to uh to answer your question then about what happened with me i I actually got in trouble, not for gathering, but for teaching without a license, believe it or not. Uh, yeah, and that I had to, I hired a lawyer and I ended up sort of settling because I was getting I got sued oh by God. the federal government for doing wow. it. Um, but what you're asking about, luckily I didn't get in trouble for because then I could have actually been put in jail uh, for... I guess they might um, call it poaching. But uh, the part that was illegal was not getting it in that case. The, what you're referring to is that it was illegal to sell wild food in the state of North Carolina. And I sold for 15 years. Now, many people were doing it, and many restaurants were buying it because that's who I sold to. And what they finally did was decide, well, let's legalize this because it's happening anyway and we're not regulating it. So it'll be safer to have some standards and to make people go through certain requirements and to then enforce the, it on the side of the restaurants that if they buy from someone who isn't approved, then they could get in trouble. And they asked me to be on the committee to help figure out, you know, what would make sense. And until I sat down in that committee, I actually did, was not even aware that it was illegal to sell mushrooms <laughs> to restaurants. Like, I, 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 all, the, all those years, like no one, maybe because so few people were doing it. Um, I mean, I knew, I knew restaurants now and then like couldn't, be buying from some unknown person like they could get inspected and like the stuff um, would get thrown out you know but to me like, that didn't translate in my mind to the fact you know that, that I couldn't be selling and um, so that's the part that has changed and now that's legalized and you do need to provide some documentation basically it's not a big deal but um, hopefully it's a step in the right direction. I, well, I was flabbergasted when you said that um, that that's not on the table. Foraging is not on the table um, for the First mm -hmm. Amendment that um, you mentioned. And also that it was just illegal in general to um, sell wild foods. Um, I'm just astounded by that. And I can't, 
I don't know. I, it, it's hard to process. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it does make sense, in, in, at least in theory, because uh, wild game, for example, mm-hmm. is also illegal. And the reason given is that it's not inspected. It doesn't. It's not processed in a, in a regulated way. So they want to. And since it's not grown in a controlled environment, it could have dis- mm-hmm. any number of diseases. Um, and, and this really cuts to the heart, you know, of what, where is the danger? Because if you read the news, like so much of the time that you create laws and regulations and supposed inspections and certifications, they get circumvented, right? They, they become like, BS, like like the organic label, oh, supposedly, you know, with USDA, and, you know, things like that, um, or the FDA, like you don't know that the, even that system is accomplishing anything. Um, so, you know, this has happened over hundreds of years, say herbalists, for example, being replaced by a medical profession. And like, can you really trust them just because they're licensed? Like, it, it it's not always mm-hmm. black and white, you know. Yeah, and yeah. I mean it's it's really an interesting. I don't know if moral question is the right phrase for it, but I mean, when you stop and think about it, and and the way you put it, I mean, eating is something we have to do to survive. And you know, if you go back millennia, our ancestors, this is how they kept themselves alive. You know, they hunted, they foraged. That was pretty much the way everything worked and i mean to an extent i can understand the idea of you know safety purposes because it's just off the top of my head i know feral hogs can carry a multitude of diseases um you know Mm -hmm. so i'd like to have that inspected Mm -hmm. before i eat one um if it's coming from a restaurant or somewhere i don't know but it really does bring up a moral Mm -hmm. kind of a quandary of you know who who gives the government the right, so to speak, to tell us how and where we can procure our food? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's it's um, it's a tough one. I mean, we um, I, I don't think the truth lies at either extreme, and I think that foundationally we lack a community, really. I mean, if you look at something like the one extreme of government would be maybe socialism or communism or something. And, and you know, my family grew up in, um, in Cuba. And when they, when Castro came in, they left because their main argument was, you know, there goes freedom. And, um, but what I tell them is that, you know, the system isn't really what matters. Like what matters is our, um, do people care about each other? And that sounds kind of like out there and like, <laughs> unfortunately, but the, the way it relates to this is that what I realized after many years of teaching foraging is that I'm actually teaching hunter-gatherer culture. And hunter-gatherers are in bands small enough to where they realize we have, we have to care about each other, and we're all in this together. Like, no one's going to rip off anyone else because <laughs> everyone else will see that. You, you know, like, you can't get away with it. There's nowhere else. I mean, you have to run off into the 
woods by yourself or join some other clan and like it, it isn't it doesn't have the namelessness that of our scale right at which you can systematically you know like cheat other people and um so I, it sounds like maybe I've you know, deviated, but this is one of the other things on that resume that you read that interests me, which is not just what is natural with what we eat, but like what's natural in how we relate to each other. Um, that's what I've learned is really important. Like how do we relate? We talk about relating to nature, like it's something out there. And I could even talk about, well, how do we relate to plants and animals and mushrooms like as like other living beings with you know with rights and stuff but to me like we don't even relate to each other naturally because there there's human nature you know there's a natural way to be and I, I think that's what's important to regain like we could go in the woods and we could like eat forage wild food but like there's a way to do it that's natural and there's a way that's very unnatural. And, you know, I, I, I like to explain the difference to people. No, it's important yeah. to, to look at those mm -hmm. two things um, as connected because it, we really are all connected in all of the actions that we take as well as the resources that we use are connected. Um, they're not mutually exclusive. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't think that you've deviated in any way. Um, I think that it's very important for us and our listeners and um, the greater community to understand that we have a responsibility to nature as much as nature um, has to hold us up. Um, and we, if we forget that balance, then we risk losing what we have with nature. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I um you know people people say well you go foraging you're going to hurt you're going to hurt nature, right? And that's um that's an alienated view. Um what I mean is that we I had a woman come up to me when I had brought a big mushroom into a restaurant for sale many years ago. It was a chicken of the woods. So it's this big foot and a half wide, like almost like a gigantic flower, orange. And I'm sort of proudly carrying this in. It's this vegetarian restaurant. So people in there are like, I guess, trying to be ethical. And she walks up and she says, what a beautiful mushroom. And now you've picked it. And now it's dead, and it'll <laughs> never go back because you killed oh, it. Oh, I've heard of the meat is murder people, I, but wow, the, the fungus is murder. Uh, uh, fruititarians. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, you know, my, the problem is this mushroom is a fruit. You know, when you pick a mushroom, you're leaving the mm -hmm. fungus to grow. And it's no more da um, damaging than picking an apple you know, from a tree, even if it's a gigantic mushroom. I, there are mushrooms that big that will come out of the same tree year after year, whether you pick that mushroom or not, because it's just the fungus in that tree fruiting. And, um, you know, people make decisions on very, um, 
limited knowledge like that. And then they turn around and this woman is eating in this restaurant food that I, I wouldn't touch because the impact of most of what you eat, even or especially if you're vegetarian, if you're not getting your meat, like, I mean, if you, if you are getting your meat locally from a, a good source, you're actually doing less damage than buying vegetables in the store which come from a system that systematically has has been the most destructive thing we've ever done which is to grow fields of of produce you know to to the word agriculture means to grow in a field and you don't have fields naturally unless you uh, cut down the woods, you know. And at this point, we don't we take we don't even realize that we take it for granted. But um, even the most organic food, you know, biodynamically raised, like uh, it's none of it's natural. All of it is destructive. I mean, it's it's the reason we have deserts that did not exist before. Now, like the Fertile Crescent is the Iraqi desert now because of agriculture. You know, the Dust Bowl happened because of agriculture. Like irrigation turns land into desert because there's salt in even fresh water and eventually it kills the ground. So this is, this is all artificial, even though it's 10,000 years old. Like it's not natural. It's interesting you none of us realize because, that. Because, you know, as a hunter, mm -hmm. I equate that to the emotional response. You know, you tell somebody you're a hunter and they're like, oh, I can't believe you killed Bambi. Well, I mean, yeah. first of all, you don't kill Bambi. You kill Bambi's mother. But <laughs> um, my, my point is, is like they think that by hunting, you're doing something inherently cruel. And don't get me wrong. There are cruel methods that I don't subscribe to. But they think you're doing something inherently cruel and that you're doing mm -hmm. irreparable harm to, you know, the environment. When in actuality, I mean, if you're doing it in a smart and mm -hmm. ethical way, the harm is pretty minimum, and quite often there can be benefits to it. Yeah, 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 exactly. I mean, I'm glad you could relate to that. I mean, it's a perfect example. Um, you know, we we have, yeah, you know, our emotions are tuned to a small scale reality that is also like. Um, mismatched to you know the complexity of a world that that we can kind of barely fathom you know when we buy our hot dog in the store or whatever about like the the you know the cage you know and these CAFOs or they're called of um, factory farming like mm -hmm. how much better is hunting right for to let an animal live a natural life you know but um i get the same thing with just with plants and mushrooms all the time yeah i'm having revelations over here um and really considering my part in this systemic desertification and mm -hmm. um harm that i caught have subscribed to through this system and i'm i I, there, there's an emotional wave that's going through me because I'm thinking about 
all of the the things that I could do and go and forage and um, see a local butcher and things that we used to do as a society and we have become so out of touch with it and it just I'm excited that you offer that in a somewhat metropolis of Asheville uh, because that that's giving access and new life to this lifestyle that we as a society and as a, a race used to have. And so I think it's very important. And I'm curious how many people um, go and seek you out for tours. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, I call them tours, like you said, and, you know, they used to be um, maybe outings, they call them that you could call it a class or a workshop. But the reality at the moment is that we have um, maybe, um, you know, a thousand or 1500 people a year, we run um, two to 300 programs, uh, five times a week in the high, the warm season, you know, March through November, and then um, maybe two or three times a month all through, through the year, uh, even in the winter. And uh, most of those people are tourists. So we call them tours <laughs> and we keep it, um, you know, light, I should say. I mean, I, I don't guide those anymore. I, I have five guides. When I do, I try to restrain myself from <laughs> railing against the system. Um, but because the truth is, you know, um, the important thing isn't really that the lifestyle changes. Like that would be sort of the cart before the horse. Um, I mean, I'm glad you had an emotional reaction. I think that's what is most important. Like people will care when their hearts are open, not because they've been told what's right or wrong. Um, and what I'm hoping is that the experience that people have, uh, leads to that because it's not just like delightful, you know, and fun to go foraging, but that realization that, you know, the world is not so difficult and dangerous a place like uh, allows us to feel safe enough to care. And then you could start caring because the reason most people don't care and don't want to think about you know, animals is like, well, I can't even pay the rent. You know, I'm just trying to make it like I can't think about, you know, that a gorilla is getting killed for my cell phone. You know, um, people aren't just unaware of that. Like they don't even have room in their, um, you know, their mental space. And I, I mean, I can't change the fact that we're in a wage slavery. I mean, but we we tend to get a lot of people um, right now, and I actually want to tell you about how we might shift, but uh, on the high end, like these these folks um, aren't struggling per se to survive, right? These tourists. and um, But a lot of them are in positions where they could, mm-hmm. they can actually enact change. and um, And I think that 
if they if like your mind is kind of like right blowing open maybe right now like you know if theirs do um then i i think i think things could conceivably change really quickly but but it has to be on an emotional level and i think that foundationally we're mm. all in what i would call chronic fight or flight yeah like w- the news is always like the things that are bad. It's always like a state of emergency, it seems. But then you go out in nature and it's like, well, everything's pretty much calm and like moving along steadily and it's peaceful. Like even if you don't forage, like you just hang out and it's now they call it I for, have not. Uh, forest a, bathing. Have you heard of me. that? I'll write that. Yeah. It, yeah. Yeah. Look that up. It's a translation of. Uh, Shirin Yoku in Japanese means uh, immersion in nature. And it's basically um, stress relief. And they've measured cortisol levels, blood pressure go down when you spend time in nature. And um, so people are understandably wanting uh, stress relief. But to me, like the most important shift is be will be like as we calm down, we can start to care about more than like looking out for number one. And it, it's you kind know? of interesting because uh, then you're talking I think about you know can change. I'm too stressed out. I can't really you know about how I'm going to pay the bills. Can't you know? Um, me. Yeah, I know. <laughs> well, we're teachers. We can't pay mm-hmm. the bills. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that that does bring me to. Uh-huh. Um, my next question yeah. is, you know, in a lot of ways, going out yeah. and putting in a little bit of work to get your food, you're putting in manpower, but you're not putting in as much currency, mm-hmm. which seems like it would alleviate some of that stress. So I guess my question is, mm-hmm. is it possible in today's day and age, you know, however you want to phrase it, for somebody to live on foraging alone? Yeah, so that's the um, that's the what I call the fourth myth of foraging, which is there's not enough out there anymore because there's too many people and not enough nature. Um, maybe that overlaps with um, like I would call the second myth is that it's too much work. Uh, and the problem is that an, an honest answer is a little complicated. Like there have been studies of hunter-gatherers and how long they spend and um you know it's basically half they work half as much or less hours a week as we do um but you know that that's a question of how much money we need to make um i think what you're asking has has more to do with mm-hmm. how much is out there right how much supply quantity yeah and um I think I think that that's the hardest thing to call a myth to to say oh there is enough out there for all of us and um I, I maybe you're asking also on an individual level and it really um it, it's really tricky I mean it depends I suppose I really want to hesitate to say where you live because one of the things people are surprised to hear is that there's actually more wow. wild food in the city than in the country. Uh, you could forage more 
more plants, more mushrooms, even more animals, I would say. I mean, if you know about feral hogs, like Mm -hmm. about deer, right, in the Northeast in particular, I mean, they're they're like a weed, I mean, in a sense, very much. Um, And the weeds like dandelion, uh, burdock, violet, chickweed, um, lamb's quarter, purslane, these are all things that you don't find in the woods. You find them in gardens, in empty lots. Like, and those are the, some of the top 10 wild plant edibles. Um, you know, even acorns, which takes an oak tree. We still have plenty of oak trees in cities. Um, and mushrooms will grow up like on any stump, you know, in, in mulch. Um, like anywhere wood has, you know, basically been killed, you know, trees, uh, their nature's recycling system. And in cities, there's been a lot of that. Um, or let, I should say suburbia even more so because it's newly, newly developed in many cases. But um, I know some of my best mushroom spots are in old neighborhoods uh, in people's like neglected yards. I mean, I've picked bags full of bolites, which is, mm-hmm. um, if you've heard of porcini or sep, like they're in my top 10 mushrooms. And those are my best places to find them. They're in um, old neighborhoods. Um, so, th- so to answer your question, like uh, people could be taking advantage of all those things, whether we all could. Uh, really depends. And that's what I said earlier that like how we forage matters. And I think that if, if we all foraged in a way that was sustainable, yes, I think we all could live on what really at that point wouldn't quite be wild food because Native Americans like didn't eat wild food. Like they managed the environment. And as you probably know from hunting, I mean, you, there's, there's a, you know, hunters have an awareness of like how much you can take, right? And if you can, if you own your land, you might burn, you might actually clear areas, open areas, right? Because that's where the, like the animals will come to eat like fresh, tender stuff. Um, so Native Americans would burn open areas and, um, you know, keep brush down in a lot of the areas. And um, so there's a, there's a context where even the word I, foraging, I do you know what it I means? I can't say I do. That's sad, but do you mm-hmm. Yeah, it comes from the word foray, and the word foray means uh, to pillage, okay? It's what a, 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 like a military group might do. You would attack a... Uh, <laughs> a village or an encampment. And that's what we call, yeah, that's our word for gathering. But that's not the way that hunter-gatherers gather. They don't just go in and take without giving, without, like, caring. So there's two ways to do it, you see, just like there's two ways to hunt, like you said. Um, And I think that the second way, which I would call permaculture, have you heard of that? Yeah. Like in permaculture, you, you basically 
enter this gray area between wild and cultivated. And then I think, yes, like everyone could live on wild food if we were doing yeah, this, permaculture this is instead me of having an internal philosophical debate with myself for probably the next month. <laughs> <laughs> because, I mean, you're really kind of opening my well, eyes to a very different way of looking at it because you hear the word foraging and it's, it's exactly the way you defined it the way it's presented is let's trump off in the woods, take whatever we can find, bring it home and, you know, go to mm -hmm. town. And it's, it, it's very yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's enlightening to hear it put the way you're putting it, which is that it's more of a, uh, how can I, it's every bit as much a, a, a mindset as it is an action. I guess it's, uh, yeah. And I, I think yeah. that for Donovan and I, we're both having these um, strong reactions to you and your um, your philosophy. And since you're a philosopher, forager, um, <laughs> which is a cool freaking word, I it is. I, I want a cool title um, like that, but well, you're short. Um, all right, we're not going to go there, <laughs> but. You, you're really taking the the aim of what we want to do with this podcast, which is to show that nature is the first classroom and is the classroom that we have abandoned for some time. And so rejoining it and learning through it is so important. And I mean, you for both of us, we are at, in indulge in academia and feel that we are knowledgeable about a lot of things. Um, but I'm gaining so much from you and really coming to see that nature has far more that, mm. to offer than I first estimated. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm glad, glad to hear it. I think that it was uh, Thoreau that said that, um, uh, a person arrived to see, uh, I think it was w Wordsworth, the poet, and um, they said, um, he's, he's not in, he's in his study. And, um, and they said, um, oh, what, I'm getting this quote wrong, I'd have to look it up. But, but um, they said, well, if he's in his, his study, well, can I go see him and isn't he inside and she said no his library is inside but his study is out is outdoors <laughs> so oh, you won't find him inside because he's studying Image. and he's just, <laughs> that's where he studies makes sense for somebody like Thoreau uh -huh. or one of the other naturalists to uh -huh. look at it that way yeah oh yes yeah well for for everyone i mean um i think um so much of education is, uh, sadly, I mean, to me, um, oh, oh, good, no, 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 no. pedagogy has changed. You are welcome to speculate and to, to drive your own. <laughs> you have the <laughs> nine times out of 10, we're wanting to change it. So, um, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I, when you ask me how I got to this, it's interesting. I don't, I don't mention this in my answer a lot, but I spent the first five years out of college um, 
interested in teaching. I actually was the, um, I'd say right-hand man, I don't know if I had a title, um, for the director of what's called the Alternative Education Resource Organization. And they're in New York, and I helped produce um, the first directory of alternative schools in maybe the world, yeah. Uh, and what I, what I got through that, <laughs> and I never ended up becoming a teacher, by the way. Um, I guess I am now, you know, for all ages. But um, what one of the things I realized is that um, we have a lot of things we call alternative, and most of the time they're just like different thing things you teach or ways you teach. And um, but what became clear is like there was one way to be alternative that was different than all the others. And that was to let the child decide what they wanted to learn. And that became known as a uh, democratic education or, uh, or in free schools. I and yeah. And sadly, have you ever heard um, of this principle? That <laughs> idea a lot of the time. Yeah. Gets, yeah. And I'm going to wax political for a second. That gets overshadowed by bureaucrats who have never stepped mm -hmm. foot in a classroom, but decide they're competent enough yeah. to write, you know, curriculums. Um, and, and it's kind of a shame because when you mm -hmm. think about it, how alternative yeah. is it when that's where we started? Well, I mean, it's, you know, some of the, some of the earliest things I remember, what do you mean? For instance, yeah. is hanging out with my dad and he would point at something on the ground and be like, don't step there or we're going to be bathing you in calamine lotion for the next week, you know, pointing to poison ivy or, um, you know, going fishing with him and pulling out a fish, mm -hmm. and he'd be like, "Okay, this is a largemouth uh, largemouth bass." So, mm -hmm. you know, that was kind of the earliest memories of mm -hmm. being educated that I had, and it's really simple. But I think for a lot of people, that education took place outside. Um, it it revolved around the things that I wanted to do. I wanted to go out and I wanted to be outside, mm -hmm. so. Mm -hmm. It just kind of naturally evolved from that. And now education has kind of become this idea of yeah. we need to teach you to be as far away from that as possible. And you can mm -hmm. kind of see that in the way that they push. And I believe me, I have nothing against like STEM curriculums and stuff like that. I think mm -hmm. they're great. But we're so caught up in that. Let's get as far away as possible that mm -hmm. people forget mm -hmm. that there's a classroom right out the back door. Your beginning of learning is much different than mine. My beginning yeah. of learning was me doing yeah. something, getting hurt, and then being told, what did you learn from that? Uh, there, <laughs> um, there was a fair amount of that, too. And I, I, I think, um, Alan, what you were saying with these, um, these alternative mm -hmm. schools is that mm -hmm. learning is not something that we can make fit everyone um, because you do have to choose to learn and um, mm -hmm. being a young teacher I am mm -hmm. I'm realizing that um, every time I walk into the classroom I I'll have a student who I I can't force them to learn I can offer them that opportunity um, but even within the constraints of what I've been given as a teacher um, I might not be teaching that student based on what they want to learn and 
Um, I know you, you say there's major flaws in society um, or one big mistake. I think another one that is huge is that we forget that our, our learning has to be done for ourselves and then for each other. But if you don't want to learn for yourself and go outside and or have those opportunities to go outside and um, learn, then you never will fully understand um, the beauty of what all this is. And I think that the three of us are very gifted um, and are very fortunate that we get to see it this way. And um, I know for myself, you have offered me so much more to contemplate than I thought I could ever contemplate. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you. Um, I appreciate the work you're doing. It's, it's, it's so exciting to, um, to have you be on, on the inside, so to speak, you know, there, there are books like last child in the woods, um, really worth checking out Richard Louvre about this. And, um, the, from my angle, um, and the reason, um, Again, like this, this I realized quite late. And I, I swear this is maybe in the last two years that hunter-gatherer culture not only includes foraging um, and the idea of what Lakota call all my relations, right? Of like, uh, we're all family from rocks to birds and humans. But um, one of the f- pillars of, of what they believe in is non-coercion or egalitarianism. Like they don't force anyone to do anything. Everything's by choice. They don't even order their children around. And that is so fundamental. And you could read uh, Peter Gray, the psychologist who is big in the alternative education movement, um, that uh, we can't fathom it. Like nobody works uh, not just kids in school, but adults, they don't even have a concept of work. Everything is play. Like everyone enjoys what they do or they don't do it. And, and it works, so to speak, it works. I mean, like it's function functions in a way that, you know, our, our culture doesn't. Um, and it, it's interesting. I never thought, well, how does, how did that f- come out of the fact that I'm eating wild food? But that's part of being natural too, you know? And that is a delightful um, surprise. Like we don't have to, we don't have to work to survive. Like we don't have to force ourselves to do what we don't want to do. Those are like crazy <laughs> ideas that it's I don't think very, my parents uh, will ever be convinced freeing of. freeing philosophy mm-hmm. when you start really mm-hmm. looking at it, the idea of being able to just live. Yeah, I, I like to say like if you... When you forage, it isn't just the food that's wild and free. Makes a lot of sense, especially after some of the way you've put some of this stuff. I mean, it's really all I can say is, "Wow!" I'm like I said, I'm going to be having an internal philosophical debate with myself for the next Mm -hmm. month. Oh, great! Well, I, 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 I'm happy to keep up the conversation, and if you ever come to Asheville, you know, please join us and um look me up and i'll do the same and and tell us the name of your um your um your tour mm-hmm. yes the website and the tours it's it's no taste like home 
and that's the website, notastelikehome.org. That's for the, the tours and uh, the company. And my website with me writing about all the stuff we talked about is alanmuscat.com, A-L-A-N-M-U-S-K-A-T. And we will uh, definitely put that on our uh, website for those of you listening. Yeah, anybody who this this podcast finds their way into your ear holes mm-hmm. should go and check that out. Um, we have been at this for an hour, and there is like mm-hmm. hours upon hours more stuff I want to talk mm-hmm. about. But um, mm-hmm. time is, is fleeing, so um, there are two questions... Mm-hmm that we like to ask um of all our guests Uh and um one of them i'm going to change up a little bit at the end which is recommendations i'm going to i'm going to kind of curveball that one but fry would you like Mm -hmm. to uh go for the story Mm -hmm. oh yes i would love to so we love to hear um what people experience out in their um field um, and what they do, but we always like to to hear like the the odd ones or most memorable, funny. So, is there a a story that you hold de- near and dear that um, you'd like to tell our listeners about, and maybe outside or in your youth or um, while foraging? <laughs> Put you on oh, the spot. With this question, but I well, there's one one thing jumps to mind that um yeah, I guess two that go together. I um I was once helping a friend move, and we were carrying furniture out the front door, and we, you know it's heavy, so we put it down for a minute, and I looked over, and there was an apple tree and apples on the ground, so I picked one up. I took a bite out of it, and he looked at me aghast, and he said, what are you doing? And I said, what? I'm eating this apple. And he says, he says to me, did he touch the ground? <laughs> oh, goodness. Wow. Um, yeah. And, you know, I, someday I'll have to track him down because I, I don't know if he was joking or not. <laughs> um, From, I mean, he might have been. I, I would say that he probably wasn't because – Honestly, that would have been my first reaction. <laughs> oh, well, look at that. Yeah, yeah, that's great. So what happened a few years later is we took some kids out from the local middle school. And, you know, when people ask what's foraging, I usually say, well, it's collecting wild food. But sometimes it's food that is growing in trees like apple trees that was planted. But now, like, they're feral, right? Like the hogs, like no, nobody is taking care of them and we found some trees and these kids like went crazy and they're just gathering up all these apples because you know they're not they're not going to be afraid to eat apples but this one kid he's like don't you need to wash these like um before you eat them and i i explained to him how i I, you actually have to wash the ones from the (laughs) store not the ones that touch the ground um because they're not sprayed and um i heard the next day from his teacher that he was like beaming for the first time, like ever. Uh, and she asked him, why, why is he so happy? And he showed her, he had like this, his knapsack was like full of apples and like, 
he was so delighted that he had had this experience that you could like, he, he had never even gotten an apple from a tree um, in, in, instead of the store. And um, who knows where that kid is now, you know, apparently it really um, had an yeah, impression. I, I, uh, I remember yeah. way back when, when I was a kid, I lived way out in the sticks and we had this, um, it was this old man that used to live across the street. And um, every year he would prune down his apples. Um, he would prune down the tree. And it was funny because I remember, mm. and, and I mean, this guy was like through the Great Depression. I mean, he was he was old school. And I remember sitting in my living room and we look out the window and we see him dragging a branch across the street and into our yard. And, and, and he knocks on my dad on my door. And my dad answers and he's mm. like, "I brought you guys some apples." And drops the branch at the foot of our stairs and just walks. <laughs> up. And it, it was a whole branch just covered with apples. <laughs> so when you know. You know, to hear, I can't believe you ate that and touched the ground. Oh, the, that poor wow. guy would have had a heart attack to see this old man dragging him across the street. <laughs> but uh, that's um, the other question we normally yeah, do so is we will ask people to give us a recommendation. I'm gonna curveball it a yeah, little yeah. bit, and I'm gonna I'm gonna put you on the spot. Mm-hmm. What are ten easy things that anybody could go out after seeing a picture? and forge up themselves without having to worry about, you know, eating the angel of death, you know, plague mushroom, for instance. Plague mushroom. <laughs> I just made it up as I went. <laughs> Wait, now tell oh, me, what's uh, the normal question? So the normal question is um, a suggestion of a, maybe an organization, a, ref- a source, um, videos, a book, um, or a, uh, a person to look into um, for our listeners to, to mm-hmm. take away with them. And I think Donovan wants to, yeah. to give our listeners, like, you can start foraging um, if you know how to, which I think we should also caution, don't just go out and start picking stuff. Definitely, um, like you said earlier, find a field guide or be aware of what grows in your area. Um, so our, we'll go with the, um, the mountain regions of North Carolina, since that's where we're really focusing on, I guess, one or two possible, um, things that you could, that are common that people could see and bring home with them. Um, well, um, the answer I want to give is zero. <laughs> uh, the to to tell people some, you know, foolproof quote, you know, things that they could just start getting on their own would be the antithesis of what Good. I teach people to do. Uh, yeah, I mean, if they want to look on the website of No Taste Like Home, there's what we call the top 30. There are 20 plants and 10 mushrooms with a little photo of each. And these could in, you know, inspire you to want to learn them. I mean, this could be your, um, you know, your to-do list. Mm-hmm. But these aren't the ones to learn on your own. These are there because they're the most common, but not because they're the easiest to identify. Uh, there is no easy plant or mushroom to learn zero uh every single one 
can be confused with something dangerous, uh, you know, in many cases, even deadly. And that's no reason not to do it, uh, just like any car can be crashed into a wall. I mean, there's no reason not to drive, but you take driver's ed with another human being. You know, there's a scene in the Muppet movie where Fozzie is driving Kermit and, and Kermit goes, how'd you learn to drive anyway? And Fozzie goes, oh, well, I took a correspondence oh, course. <laughs> you know? Yeah, so that's uh, this would be a correspondence course if I told people that they mm -hmm. could go out and oh yeah, this is this is a safe plant to learn or like th that doesn't exist. I, I've seen people make the craziest mistakes. I, I would never imagine someone could make um, as a beginner. And um, yeah, it would be irresponsible to to say these are safe, but but. The most common ones are, are listed there. And, you know, I could rattle those off. Now, um, I mean, blackberries is one. And you'd think, okay, well, who's going who's gonna to eat the wrong thing? Everybody knows blackberries. But, um, you know, that's, um, that's not true. Like, I can think of, um, I don't know, I'm thinking of like a poisonous grape. What would be a dark berry that's dangerous? Oh, I'm thinking of a um, uh, nightshade, but it's I actually edible. I immediately went. Go ahead. I mean, I can think um, something like uh, rose hips grow wild, and yet you think you might think you know it, but I have seen bittersweet vining around through a rose hip bush, and bittersweet berries get mixed in while people are picking rose. I've also seen it with um, autumn olive, which is a red edible berry and it's not that they're hard to tell mm -hmm. apart it's that if you're not being careful you could confuse them um so at the moment i can't think of a um you know a dangerous blackberry but i can think that blackberries for example could grow oh and i have had situations where they were in a sprayed area and um you know they may have taken up a chemical contaminant so it isn't just being able to identify something. It's being able to realize, oh, I'm picking right by the interstate or something like this is in a golf course and like golf courses are totally sprayed. So there's a lot of concerns that you may not think so of. So would a good example be yeah. like a, um, a morel, which is, I mean, really kind of a distinct looking mushroom. And um, I believe it's called like a false morel. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's... Um, I I don't know a good example of what. What would you oh, mean? Oh, I mean of like um, you know, easily confusing one thing with another. Yeah, it's all it's all a question of what you're used to. I mean, I whether a false morel and a morel look alike, it's just um, it, it's impossible to say. I mean, I, I have a Chinese friend, and I told her, you know, Joanne, like, how can you tell each other apart? And she said, Alan, like, we can't tell all you white people apart. <laughs> yes. You know? It's important. Yeah. It's, it's, like, it's like, what do you mean? That, that makes me think of um, an instance that happened in my classroom. And Fry, you know the student. Uh -huh. I'm not going to say his name here, but. Um, oh, God. I, oh, don't, don't. I have a, uh, she was an Asian 
girl. Um, she was Korean. Uh-huh. And this kid perks up one day and he looks at her. He goes, do you speak Chinese or Asian? Oh, gosh, <laughs> Ignorance um, is per- runs profusely through um, some of the children at our school. But I, mm-hmm. that's something that we can combat and he um, works to it. <laughs> but it's okay. Oh, that's such a, a good moment. Um, so I, I think I'm going to bring this back. So since we now know we should not just go willy-nilly looking for things and saying, let's do this on our own, um, mm-hmm. what is a resource that um, you would suggest to our viewers to look into, whether that be, um, I dare say, a book um, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, or just maybe something that they could take with them so that they can start this process of going into foraging if they would like to. Yeah. I mean, the people really can go out and start like tomorrow foraging and they can be an expert because to me, like being an expert isn't a question of like how much, you know, it's, it's a very simple principle that you have to remember. And it's summed up in one word with three letters and it's what you do if you're not, if you don't know enough. You want to guess what that word is? Try. I'm going to go. <laughs> no, that's not Just try. No, oh. no, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say ask. That's it. Yes. That's <laughs> so not it's it. not just go out and eat oh. stuff. <laughs> yes, it's not eat. It's not like run or die. Or uh, one person once said 911. <laughs> <laughs> And, and that was the closest answer, because in a way, that's asking. Like, you want to ask for help and find somebody in your area. Like, sure, there are books and videos, and those are all can be really helpful as learning tools. But, like, if you make a decision on what to eat based on what you've seen in books, like, or apps, like, you're still doing it yourself. And, like, DIY is, is D-U-M. It's like, it's a great way I, I say to D-I-E. You know? <laughs> um, yeah, I'm not, I, I'm not looking for, to, you know, for a monopoly here. I'm, I'm telling people to go find someone in their area. And um, if that's, you know, that might take some looking, but uh, it may be an old person, you know, who grew up in the Depression or something, but... Um, or you might have to travel a little bit. There are mushroom clubs in every state. I know that. And um, someday there'll be uh, foraging clubs, just like, like Boy Scouts everywhere. And um, you know that's what I'm working towards. It's just unfortunately a cultural shift. But um, yeah, on a practical level, like uh, it's not only, it might be harder to find someone, but it's infinitely easier to learn walking around with somebody being able to point at things than taking like two hours to try to look it up in a book, which is very challenging. And, and you know? yeah. that makes perfect sense. And I, I think um, DIY, uh, DIY can equal DIE is going to end up burned into my brain now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, <thanks. laughs> we, we will definitely quote you on that. DIY, uh-huh. DIY equals DIE. Well, yeah, it's, 
DIT, have you heard this? Doing doing it together. That's the the really what you want to be doing. Oh, excellent. Yeah. Yeah. DIT, do it together. Well, mm-hmm. Alan, it has been a pleasure talking with you. And uh, for all of our listeners, please go and look up um, Alan Muscat um, with no taste like home.org and his personal website, alanmuscat.com. And we thank you for your time so very much. It has been a pleasure. Yeah, I've enjoyed it too. Thanks for having me. Oh, thank you so very much. Well, for those of you listening, this has been Teachers in the Wild with Fry and Donovan, and we hope that you come back next time and continue to stay wild, my friends. Stay tuned. Same bat time, same bat channel.